If you've been listening to the show for the last three plus years, you no doubt have heard us ask hundreds, maybe even thousands of questions to the amazing copywriters and experts who've been on the show. We've even asked a few people to join us and turn the tables to ask us questions. Today, we're going guestless for the 230th episode of the Copywriter Club podcast, and we're answering the questions that get asked the most often in our free Facebook group, as well as some questions that are asked in our paid programs, like the Copywriter Accelerator and the Copywriter Underground. When you say guestless, it makes it sound like we're naked. <laughs> like, like we're missing something. Yeah, it sounds like we're, we're shedding all the layers today and uh, it's just us. Nice. Um, I, so, I would actually hate, I would hate to think that people would think we're not clothed here, but yeah, that's embarrassing. It's just us today, uh, naked, and uh, we're going to answer your questions. Before we do that, this podcast episode is brought to you by TCC. NIRL, of course, it's TCC, not in real life, our event for copywriters and other smart marketers who want to learn from experts like Joanna Weeb, Carlene Anglade Cole, Todd Brown, Jerisha Hawk, Joel Kletke, Aman Ishmael, and more than a dozen others. But this event is not just about great presentations, it's not just about sitting at your computer and staring at Zoom all day. Um, it's really about connecting with other copywriters and intimate virtual spaces so you can build real relationships, um, even possibly friendships, partnerships, and also get a lot of work done while you're with us over the three days. So we're really focused on doing, not just learning, and we're focused on implementation through workshops. So you're not just sitting through a presentation and then going back to your work with nothing to show for it. So if you're interested in this uh, virtual experience that we're really excited about, you can learn more at thecopywriterclub.com backslash T-C-C-I-R-L dash one. And if you don't remember that link, then you can just find it in the show notes on our website. Yeah, I'm excited. That's going to be April 7th through 9th, 2021. If you're listening to this after that, you missed the opportunity to join us. But if you're listening before those dates, make sure you you, you join us. It's going to be great. Okay. So let's open up. Uh, I, I want to say the mailbag, but we don't actually get any real mail, uh, email bag or, or the Facebook groups um, and answer some of the mail? questions. Some, well, email. Oh, you mean like you mean like mail questions? Yes, yes, okay. questions in the mailbag. <laughs> but so we're gonna we're gonna answer a bunch of questions that we guess we get asked a lot. Starting with, when are you gonna open the accelerator again? So, Kara, when are we gonna open the accelerator <laughs> <Okay>. again? <laughs> I feel like that's a really easy question to start, which is great because um, I like easy. So we are going to open the accelerator again in the fall. Um, we are currently running the program with an incredible group, copywriters, and uh, we're going to run it again starting September. So you'll hear about it probably starting in July, but definitely in August. And um, we're going to make some updates to the program. It's a program that we love and believe in, and we're always excited to <laughs> improve it and make it better as the copywriting space changes um, so that it, it's uh, valuable to all the copywriters who participate in it. 
Uh, I actually sat down this morning and started outlining some of the changes that I think we need to make. And I'm actually kind of excited of, about what this new iteration is going to look like. So it's all good. You're, you're on the ball. You're, uh, we I'm just trying. talked about changes yesterday and you're already making notes. That's impressive. I had some time. Um, okay. So let's start with, I'm glad that you gave me the easy question. I'm going to give you a harder question. Rob, should you ever work for free? Should any of us ever work for free? This question comes up quite frequently in all of our groups. Yeah. And I think it's actually a really good question because uh, there are times when it's definitely not right to work for free and uh, times when I think it is acceptable. So there's a lot of pushback in the copywriting world about doing free projects or test projects. And sometimes I would agree with that. You know, sometimes it is not okay to work for free. Um, you know, especially if people are going to be using the work that you create for their clients, if they're charging for it, those kinds of things, you should definitely be paid for that. But occasionally there's an opportunity that will come along where you're asked to do a test project, uh, you know, as part of an application process, or if a, you know, a client may say, Hey, I don't have the budget. Um, you know, can you do this for free? In which case you might decide to do it. And uh, I think that there are a couple of criteria that I would assign to that. Um, you know, first of all, does this free project, if it doesn't earn you money, does it lead to something else that is beneficial? So, you know, you and I, Kira, we talk sometimes about how there's more than one way to get paid. It's not always cash. Uh, it's not always money in the bank. So if a free project could lead to a testimonial or to a case study or to a, another paying project, if it introduces you to potential clients, if it uh, you know, is the starting point of you know, a project with an agency, that kind of thing, then you might consider doing it. Maybe not always, but um, you know, those things you can use to leverage in your business. And in sometimes, especially when you're starting out, testimonials, case studies, connections are worth more than a few hundred dollars in the bank. And so in those cases, you might consider working for free. If you've been doing this thing for a long time though, I think free work, you know, you've got connections, you've got your processes down, you've got a few testimonies, whatever. At that point, I think you really do need to stop doing free work and, and ask for money for uh, the value that we create. What do you think? Disagree? Agree? I disagree completely. Yeah, I, I thought so. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I, I've never done, I mean, I'm sure I've done free work in my lifetime, but I have not done free copywriting projects for a client. I agree with you that sometimes we get paid in multiple ways that could be more valuable than a payment, uh, than a cash payment. Um, but I think as far as like, if you're doing free work, then at least you should be able to control it. Maybe you're building your portfolio and you're choosing a couple of clients and you're, you're choosing dream clients and dream projects. Uh, companies that probably wouldn't hire you, but you're adding it to your portfolio and doing some really cool work that you could send over to them and possibly win them over as a client. I, I think the part I disagree with is that I would never feel comfortable hiring someone and not paying them anything and that like a copywriter in that sense. So I just, I guess I question any client you would work with that's not paying you in some way. Um, is that a healthy relationship? I think even when I work with junior copywriters and do test projects, I like to pay them something. And it might be significantly less than a typical fee for a project because it's a test project and there are multiple people and it's just a different, it's a different matter at that point. Um, but if there's a client you really want to work for and they're like, I'm not going to pay you for this. I just think unless it is this tremendous portfolio piece and they've guaranteed they'll write you a testimonial, then I just would steer clear of that client. 
Yeah. Again, I think that, you know, it's never a hard yes or a hard no. Well, that's actually not true. Sometimes it is a hard yes or a hard no. Um, But, you know, if you're just starting out, there may be opportunities to consider it, but it's definitely not something that you want to make a habit. It's definitely not something that, you know, once you've got some experience that you're making as part of your business plan or whatever, because we should all get paid for the value we create. I do think it's there are times where you can charge a little bit less and work within budgets of a client, a particular client, if it's a dream client, or if you just want to get that experience or you want to grow your portfolio, that maybe you're more flexible with your budget and you even take a cut. I've been willing to do that at times for the right client. So I'm not against that either when it makes sense. Yeah, agreed. Okay. Next question. Uh, this is one that we get asked a ton as well. In fact, we've even asked it of other guests who've been on the podcast. And that is, when should I hire a VA or start hiring other people onto my team to help me get the work that I need to get done, done? <laughs> um, when you hate your life and you're stressed out and you hate your business, probably is a good time to hire someone to help. Um, maybe before that. Uh, so for me, it was when I was definitely overstretched. Um, I probably waited way too long. But I think if you're managing multiple clients, I would say more than maybe more than like two, more than two clients, definitely more than three. Uh, at that point, you could bring on a VA to help you with the project management. So that's, I mean, that's was my main use for a VA was please help me manage these projects so they're smooth because I can't project manage them and copy chief them and be the the main copywriter and be the salesperson. So um, definitely if you have a business set up where you're working with more than three clients at a time, I would bring in a VA to help you with the project management side of the business. I think that's a great way to, um, to bring somebody in for a necessary part of the business that will help alleviate stress and help you actually be able to take on more client work which will ultimately cover the expense of a VA. Yeah, I think that last point that you're making about covering the expense, I think is really important because anytime you bring somebody else into your business, they really do need to pay for themselves in some way. So either they're taking lower paid tasks off of your hands so that you can focus on higher paid work. So, um, you know, maybe, maybe they're doing things like invoicing, which can be done for, you know, 25 or $30 an hour. And that allows you to do more copywriting that you're doing at say 150 or $200 an hour, or, you know, whatever those prices are right for in your business. Um, and I think, also, we often think that the VA is the first hire. And um, while that is true in a lot of cases, sometimes it makes more sense to hire somebody that's a little bit more skilled in processes and OBM, a business manager type person first to help get those processes aligned, to help get all the structures set up. Um, and in, when you have that, then when you start bringing in thing, you know, people like a junior writer or a VA, the processes are in place. It's, everything's much more efficient. Uh, and so that's another way that you can go. That may not be the right thing for everybody because there is an additional expense there, but processes make having, uh, employees or contractors in your business so much easier. Yes. I would have looking back, I didn't really know what an OBM was at the time when I hired my VA. I think, I feel like it's something that we talk about frequently now, but we didn't a couple of years ago. And so I would have hired that person probably to come in and like build out all the systems to make everything run smoothly. And that would be the first hire, even though it is a little bit um, pricier. I think it's, it's worth it, especially if you're not a systems minded person. Okay. 
Next question. Ooh, this is a good one. What books are you currently reading? That is a good question. And I'm just like looking around my desk right now. I, I, I have like, like six or seven books that I read at the same time. And it, I don't know uh, how, to, how to overcome this. I feel like it's a weakness, uh, but I can't stop. So um, I just finished uh, a couple of days ago reading Done by Noon by Dave Ruel. That's a time management book. Uh, not necessarily anything new, but offered a really good process that um, was intriguing to me and you know, I like um, and highly recommend. Couple, I'm hearing, I'm hearing something coming through the speakers. Is that? I don't think that's oh, no. me. Oh, you know what it is? I hear. It. I, yeah, it's because something just turned on in my Audible. Duh, as I was looking for other books. Never mind. Um, okay, so other books um, that I've been reading: Ready, Fire, Aim, uh, by Michael Masterson or um, Mark Ford. Uh, all about you know um, how to grow your business, um, different uh, stages of your business, and what you should be doing in each. Um, I'm going to grab a book. I have not yet started reading this one, but it just came out. Victor Frankl, Yes to Life. So apparently um, this is a bunch of lectures that he published early on. Uh, he's he's the author of um, Man's Search for Meaning, which is like easily in my top 10 books that I've ever read. Um, there were some untranslated lectures that he gave and they've just been republished into a book. And so my wife gave those to me on Valentine's day. I would and, like that uh, one. I would like that one. And my birthday is coming up. So yeah, there you go. There you go. You're making a note. Three or four podcast fans are going to be sending you that book now. Um, I was just listening to another book that uh, is incredibly fascinating uh, called the righteous mind by Jonathan Haidt. Um, it's all about, um, how our like morals are founded on, uh, intuition and then how we use reason to justify the things that we react to emotionally. Um, I think that there are a ton of copywriting lessons in this, but it's really about, um, you know, morals, uh, in a society and individually and why, you know, the different political sides don't get along, uh, and the basis for that and how, um, you know, we often think that the other side, you know, whoever we disagree with is wrong or evil. And um, it's a really good look at how other people's uh, belief systems are often based on uh, just different kinds of morality that we don't often see when, you know, we don't grow up uh, thinking that way, or uh, even some of it is intuitive and inborn and, you know, comes uh, with our genes before, uh, before the culture starts acting on us. So it's a fascinating book. And then one last um, wait. What's book. that one called again? I I would like that one too. What's that one called? It's called The Righteous Mind by Jonathan Haidt. He also uh, wrote um, a book. Uh, I think called something on happiness. I can't remember what his other book um, is called, but um, yeah. And then last but not least, uh, if I can find it, I just downloaded to listen to it. Um, it's a um, it's like a three part trilogy on. Uh, the civil rights movement and Martin Luther King uh, in particular. And I can't see it on my list, but um, I'm really excited about that. Um, I'll post a link to it in the show notes. I can't remember what the title is, but it's like, it's on audible. It's super long. It's like a 40 hour book or whatever. So it's going to take me a little while to get through, but, um, and that's just the first of the trilogy. Um, but it sounded really interesting uh, as I heard about it. I thought, oh, let's listen to that one when I'm out walking. So that's, that's a range of maybe the six or seven books that I've got. There's another book of poetry over on my nightstand and some other stuff I'm looking at, but that's good enough. What are you reading, Kira? 
I like it. Well, I'm going to take the books out that you and I are both reading because you already mentioned Ready, Aim, Fire. Uh, Let's see. So I am reading – this is like the unedited – Facing the Climate Emergency by Margaret Klein Solomon. Um, So this one is all about uh, (laughs) what to do over the next 30 years to – alleviate some of the pain of the climate emergency. It's a quick read. It's all about, it's actually interesting because she's a psychologist. So she's talking about climate change from the perspective of like how people are dealing with it and how people like cope and deny and all the emotions around it. So it's interesting um, if you're interested in the psychology behind it. Fair Play is when I need to start my (laughs) Fair Play by Eve Rodsky. Um, my therapist recommended it because it's all about in your relationship, I guess in any partnership, how to make sure that it's fair, the responsibilities of the household or a family are fair. And in my relationship with Ezra, he tends to do a lot more than me. So so this is an exercise we can go through to kind of like reassign all the tasks in our household and our family so that it's fair. And so are you guys reading the it reason I'm delaying it is because like, I don't actually want to make it fair. I think <laughs> I should. And it even comes with a set of cards and each card has a different responsibility. And I flipped through the cards and I realized like a lot of them belong to him and not many belong to me. So it's one of those exercises I know is important, but I'm also like delaying that as long as possible. So I don't have to take on more responsibility <laughs> in my household. Um, and then The Uninhabitable Earth, Life After Warming by David Wallace Wells. I think you can see a trend with what I'm thinking about these days. And also the one that Rob recommended, which I will mention because I'm excited about it, Done by Noon. So um, Rob is forcing me to read this. And I'm grateful for that because I do want to figure out how to be done by <laughs> – I want to be done by noon. So I think that's a great goal. And then the other one that I started and stopped because like Rob, I – I actually like reading six to eight books at a time. Um, Lives of the Stoics by Ryan Holiday, um, just to you know get some wise words in there. So that's one that I can kind of take a break in. Like I'll read it a little bit, and then I need a break, and I need to read about some type of crises or something else to keep me interested. So that's the current collection. It's quite fun. Can get be a, be a little emotional, a little depressing at times, but I feel like it's a good mix to pull me in many directions. I think if if you uh, are able to be done by noon, you'll have more time for fair play in uh, in making that happen. So it's a good combination, a one-two punch. <laughs> right. And then I can do more to like fight and, and work towards the climate, climate emergency. I think I need to start with that book, Done by Noon, so I can actually do all the things I want to do with all the other books. So yeah, that's, that's our collection. I, I want some of your books, Rob. So I'm actually looking forward to getting your list. Cool. Yeah. And that's maybe something we can revisit. Uh, every time we do a podcast like this, I mean, we will have read another bunch of a handful of books. So it's. Uh, or, or this for me, or, the or same. May, or maybe, same maybe we're books. still making through. Yeah. <laughs> so we can revisit that in the future. Okay. Next question. Uh, another one that we just see all the time. And this one's a little bit nebulous. Uh, and so maybe we can just, you know, talk about a couple of approaches to this, but what should I charge for X? Uh, you know, we'll see people who have projects in the Facebook group. It's like, Hey, you know, I've never done this kind of a thing before. You know, I haven't done a sales page before. I haven't done a, a small launch before or a video script 
whatever. So how do you think about pricing, uh, Kara, and what should people be charging for the work that they do? Yeah. So we actually, we just talked about this in our clubhouse room this past week. We talked all about pricing and um, I think the first place to start is to just understand where you are as a copywriting business, what stage you're in in that um, in your business growth, and ex- as far as experience, as far as like building your authority, um, creating a demand for your services. Because what we would say to somebody who has done the work and marketed their business and built their reputation over a couple of years or more than that would be very different. I think our advice to them would be very different in maybe our think tank or a roundtable mastermind compared to if we're talking to somebody who's new to a copywriting business and just got started, the advice would be slightly different because they're in a different stage of their business. Maybe no one knows them. They just are um, taking their first few copywriting jobs. So I think the first place to start is like, where are you in that stage? Are you a beginner, a newbie? Are you um, more intermediate where you, you've got some projects under your belt and um, have some experience? You've started to put yourself out there. You're starting to get some referrals. People are sharing your name. Um, that's kind of the second bucket where it's you're really competitive. You're in a competitive market. People are often commodity shopping. They're talking to you, but they're also probably talking to two other copywriters. And then, of course, when you have invested the time in building your authority and building your expertise – and visibility, then you have people at that stage, it's what we all want, right? It's like you have prospects who are coming to you and only want to work with you. They heard you speak on a podcast or on a stage and they're like, I just want to work with you, Rob Marsh. I don't even want to talk to other people. Like, please find time in your schedule. I'll pay whatever you want me to pay to work with you. And so we want to be there, but we don't start there. So at least, Rob, that would be my advice is like figure out where you are starting because that's going to be a very different conversation and we could dive deeper into that too. But where, what would you start to think about or advise when you're thinking about pricing? Yeah. So I, I always talk about like these three main levers. There's actually more than that, but there's, and you're hitting on number one, which is that expertise level. You know, where are you in your business and you know, what are you, what are you capable of actually doing right now? Uh, number two, and this lines up with where you are in your business and that is which clients are you working with? Uh, you know, so as a beginner, you tend to start out working with, you know, uh, cheaper clients, uh, smaller projects, those kinds of things. And, uh, you know, as you grow in your business, you know, bigger projects come along, um, you know, more uh, research heavy or writing heavy or, you know, longer projects, whatever, and uh, higher paying projects. And then so, you know, it's the, the kinds of clients that you work with and their ability to pay, their willingness to pay for what you're asking, um, you know, their experience level in working with other copywriters helps determine that price. Uh, you know, if if you decide that you're going to charge $5,000 for a sales page and your clients all are under the impression that sales pages are worth about $1,500 or they're budgeting about $1,500 for a sales page, there's a huge disconnect there that you're not going to be able to get what you think you're worth, what you're charging, right? So as far as pricing goes, your client's ability, willingness to pay matters. And then I guess the third lever is just the value you create. Um, and this is a little hard to figure out as you're just starting out, but you know, if you create a launch plan, sales pages, you know, video scripts, emails, whatever that create a, you know, high six figure, seven figure launch for a client, 
you can then use that to you know talk about the value that you created. You just created assets that can be used for two or three years to create a million dollar result or a you know five hundred thousand dollar result or maybe it's a twenty thousand dollar result, right? So. Uh, and the fact that you have proven that value, that the work that you do has X number as the end result, you can use that value to start raising your prices and to charge for the value you create as opposed to the hours that you work or what a project should be worth you know, in, inside your head. So I, I guess that's what I would add to what, what you said. Yeah, I think the value piece is most important because the majority of us um, overlook the value completely. And we're just thinking about uh, the time it takes to create the deliverable, which is important, but you're right. And we, it's easier to know the value if you have those testimonials and those case studies. And if you're asking those offboarding questions, like a month after a project and you're getting into the, the data and asking those somewhat uncomfortable questions, which is like, did this work? Was this effective? Did you get sales? It's scary to ask that sometimes because we're worried that they're going to say no or they're going to be Sometimes they do say no. <laughs> so and sometimes it doesn't work out as well. So oftentimes we don't even ask. But if you can start collecting that data, it's easier to start to see trends and to understand that out of the last five projects, um, the five email sequences I wrote, each one averaged and made about 10K for that, for that client over six months. And so you can start to make predictions about what else you could do for future clients based on the past results. And if you don't have the past results, that's okay too. You can start to make, um, you can make an estimate and, and a hypothesis about what you predict you could make for that client based on the numbers, you know, how much traffic they have to their website, how many sales you predict you could make if you make improvements and optimize their website. So you can ask for numbers in the sales call to start to formulate uh, an idea of what they could make on a project without guaranteeing it. Yeah, exactly. If you have those numbers, it just becomes so much easier to, to figure out, you know, what that value is that you can build for somebody. And I think the hourly part, though, I always, even though I want to think about value, I do think about my hours on a client project, how much I'm getting paid for the hour, especially, you know, as you get busier and you try to evaluate, is this worth it? There's an opportunity cost. Um, is this client project worth it? I want to know what the hourly rate is and what I'm bringing in per hour to see if the project is worth it or not. So that's where tracking your time becomes really important. Yeah, you you wouldn't necessarily bill hourly, but understanding, you know, sort of this hourly rate in your head so that you're making sure your time is used most effectively is definitely something everybody should be doing. And an example of that is I have one retainer client that I write emails for that retainer client. I have junior copywriters I work with. So I usually spend an hour, average of an hour a week on that client. And so I have to look at the time that I'm spending on it to see how much I'm getting paid. And then also what I'm paying out to other copywriters to see, is it worth it in the end? Um, is what I'm making hourly worth it when I'm paying out other people to help with those projects? So it's always uh, a key to track. Okay. There's always more to say when it comes to pricing. That is a whole masterclass. Um, but let's move on to the next question. Rob, what are the most profitable niches? Yeah, this is a question that comes up quite a bit in our accelerator program because, you know, when we talk about whether or not we should niche and which niches people should choose, obviously people want to be able to, you know, make money. And sometimes uh, that's the driving factor for some people, which is totally okay, you know, if, if that's what you're in copywriting for. Um, 
And typically you'll hear the answers, you know, finance, um, maybe, you know, health and wellness, nutraceuticals, um, you know, vitamin supplements, those kinds of things. Um, but uh, I would say that honestly, any niche can be profitable if you can connect with the right clients and you can solve a problem that those clients have. And so, you know, you do not necessarily need to write things that you don't like, that don't interest you. Um, as long as you can find clients who have a problem that, you know, has some value to it. So, you know, if, if you, uh, you know, want to write, say in the nonprofit sector, which, um, you know, there are lots of clients there who don't have big budgets. They have huge uh, opportunities to help people out. Um, but again, you know, maybe don't want to, don't want to pay uh, as much as say somebody who has say a financial newsletter. If you can help them solve their biggest problem, which may be, you know, bringing in donations or growing their, uh, their donor lists, um, those kinds of things, um, you can almost write your own check because, you know, if you can bring in four or $5 million, if you can help them raise that kind of money, then, you know, you can start to negotiate, say, well, you know, what, what if I take 5% of that or 10% of that? And, you know, maybe you learn how to dial it up. So it's not five or 10 million, but now you're bringing in 50 million, right? You can, you can, as long as you can solve a big problem for somebody, um, you can make money. And that's not just true again, in, in what I've talked about, you know, you know, if you can help doctors bring in more patients or dentists bring in more patients into their practice, that is a really valuable skill set, and uh, it's achieved by copywriting. If you can, you know, help people find clients for their online stores or you know get their launches off the ground, like all of these things can be profitable as long as you can solve a problem. If you can't solve that problem that they have, then you'll struggle in any niche, including the profitable ones like finance and health and wellness. Well said. Right. I don't have much to add to that <laughs> other than um, if you're just getting started and you're trying to figure this out, just look at where other copywriters are working. What niches are they talking about? What type of projects are they taking? There's nothing wrong with getting started by almost like mimicking what other working copywriters are doing, not copying them, but just following the trends of, oh, it seems like this industry is paying a lot of copywriters to do work. So maybe I should explore it. Um, and figure out if you like it or not. Or these deliverables seem to be mentioned frequently, so maybe I should see if I like writing that type of deliverable because I know there's a lot of work there. And so I think oftentimes we make it more complicated when we're just getting started out and we feel like we have to find something that's so unique in the copywriting space, but there's nothing wrong with starting with something that is just needed and popular and there's already a demand for it in the copywriting industry because there's always going to be more work with those deliverables or those industries. For sure. Yeah. And no niches forever. You know, you can try things, you no. can back up, you can try new things, yes. you can switch at any time. Uh, in fact, I think both you and I have switched our niches in the past and who knows, we may switch again in the future. So, uh, okay. Next question. Uh, why are you guys on clubhouse and when are you guys on clubhouse? Yeah. So, um, well, I think, Rob, you really kind of hooked on to Clubhouse initially. I, I mean, I kind of had the same reaction that a lot of copywriters in our communities have had, which is like, oh my gosh, I don't need another social media channel. I need less, not more. Um, but I think it was really helpful because you were so curious about it. And a couple other people too, Christina Torres in our think tank was telling us about you know how powerful it is. And so hearing about... Um, how new and exciting and how different it is was alluring enough to pull, I think, both of us in. 
And I do think that even if we feel like we have too many social media channels, it's always worth paying attention to what is happening in the marketplace. Even if you have zero interest in using it as a marketing tool for your own business, we are marketers and whether or not we like it, we need to pay attention to what is happening in the space we work in for our clients so we can um, provide a better better education and be more of a consultant to our clients. So for me, when you got interested in it, I was like, sure, I'll check it out. Rob's excited about this. This could be great for the Copywriter Club because it's community-based and we are a community-based business. But mostly it was like, I want to check this out because I want to understand what's happening in the marketplace because that's my job as a marketer. So that's where it started for me. What about for you? Yeah, I, I was also curious about it. There are a couple of things that I really like about Clubhouse. And then there are some drawbacks to it as well that, you know, I'm not convinced that it's the best thing out there. Um, but there are conversations that happen on Clubhouse that uh, because of the nature of Clubhouse, they really aren't happening anywhere else. Uh, so, you know, for example, I've jumped into some calls uh, with direct response copywriters and heard them talk about you know, their, their philosophy behind a particular promotion, the response rates they got, why they did a particular upsell, you know, what they were doing to change persuasion. And I think, I mean, in your head or in my head, I'm thinking, well, those conversations happen elsewhere, but they, but they don't happen in the same way because everything is off the cuff. It's not scripted. You're actually getting the, the real expert, you know, not a PR person or their assistant who's posting something on social media for them. So you're getting information in a, in a different way. And it feels to me like it's just a little bit more raw, a little bit more real. And so those kinds of conversations are really interesting to me. And uh, I've learned some things that I don't think I would have learned even in a podcast interview if I had asked the same questions. I think people are a little bit more protective of what they share, um, certainly when they, they write it down or they create courses. And so there are conversations happening on Clubhouse that um, are different from conversations happening anywhere else. Um, I do think that there are some drawbacks, though. The fact that it's not recorded, the fact that it lives in the moment, um, you know, that's been pitched as one of the good things about it. But it also means that those conversations are lost. If you're not there, you know, at 11 o'clock or at four o'clock, whenever that conversation happens, then you miss out. And that's unfortunate. And because of that, um, you know, we might look at, at that and say, okay, you know, it's kind of fun to be here, but uh, we're not going to make it a huge part of our business because we can't repurpose that content somewhere else. Or, you know, it disappears, unlike the time we spend on a podcast, which, you know, we've got podcasts that we recorded three years ago that still get listened to almost every single week. And, uh, you know, being able to share information in that modality in, you know, in that way, maybe more productive for us as a business. And so, yeah, so there's, there's kind of two sides to it that I, um, that I like and don't like about it. And I, I'm just going to keep showing up and experimenting and playing around in there just because I think it's it, like you said, new, interesting, and we should understand how it works as a marketing vehicle or as an authority building vehicle for our clients and for ourselves. And it is working for copywriters we know who are in the underground, the think tank, who are showing up in rooms regularly, maybe once or twice a week. They are getting clients. They're actually booking clients from this platform. And if I, I mean, you and I aren't necessarily looking for a ton of new clients for a copywriting business right now, but if I were looking to get booked for the next six months, I would use Clubhouse as the tool right now because it's still new and you can get into these rooms with the right people who are launching their rooms just about course creators and you can be the only copywriter in that room. So 
I think it's really strategic if you are looking for clients, if you feel like you could even like level up and find new clients to use it. Um, for us, it's been really powerful just to connect with more copywriters because that's what we're focused on in the community and to hear from copywriters that we may not have met otherwise that aren't in any of our current communities. I, I'm constantly surprised by how many jump into our room and I have no idea who they are. And so we start following each other. So I think there's just this access to a new group of people, a new pool of people that you may not have access to otherwise. And so if you're interested in finding new clients or community building, it's definitely a great tool. And as Christina Torres has shared with us, she uses it for research uh, for her client projects. And we, this is what we do. A voice of customer is so important. So if you could go into a room focused on a particular subject related to a client's project, and you can listen like a fly on the wall to the conversations that are unedited and oftentimes vulnerable too. I mean, that's the best voice of customer data out there. So I think if anything, we should probably all be using Clubhouse as a tool in our marketing or our research toolkit um, because it's it's it could be more powerful than it, uh, the other tools we're currently using. Yeah, I agree. Um, we actually wrote a, a guide to Clubhouse for copywriters. It's on the Copywriter Club blog. If you want to check that out, we'll link to it in the show notes. Uh, we talked about how Christina's using uh, Clubhouse for research, and she shares three or four different ways for copywriters to do that specifically. We also talked about uh, Kevin Young, who has been in there, um, and she's landed two or three clients just from connecting with people, asking questions, talking about what she does. And so anyway, check out that on the blog, you know, it will give you some ideas of, of what you might be able to do with Clubhouse if you're curious about it. Um, maybe finally, um, Kara, we should just share when we're on Clubhouse, at least right now, pretty regularly. Yeah. So we are on every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Eastern. We are, um, sometimes we're leading the discussions or we're inviting other copywriters to lead the discussions on a variety of topics of interest to the community. And so you can always jump in there just to watch, or not to watch, to listen. Or if you want to share and participate, um, we're always uh, allowing and pulling more people onto the stage to share their insights and advice. So it is still a bummer that um, Androids can't access Clubhouse. I feel like that will change soon. So that is also the downside. It's just that we're losing part of our community that can't plug in right now. Yeah, I know they've hired an Android developer, and so that is coming. Um, but yeah, it may it may still be a few months away from when we're recording this. But in the end, I think the my final words on it is just don't be don't be a Debbie Downer when it comes to new social media platforms. Even though I am the first person to be that Debbie Downer, because I'm like, I don't need this. This is like this is this is just really bad. But again, it's. You never know when there is an opportunity with a new social media platform. And again, this is like this is what we all signed up for as marketers is at least to learn and explore and then make a decision. So at least explore before you decide that it's not a tool you want to use for research. It's not a tool you want to use for acquisition. It's not a tool you want to use with consulting for your clients, but at least explore it first before you make that decision. 
I mean, it's a great place to make connections. You know, if you if you show up, and you want to talk to Rob and Kira, you know, one on one or, or, you know, as part of the group, like you come into our room, you can ask us a question directly. And I could do the same thing in a room with, you know, Laura Belgray. You know, I know when she's showing up in some rooms, I could do the same thing you know, with someone like Paris Lampropoulos or David Deutsch because they show up in rooms, you know, where they are. Like, it's just it's a right now. It's a great way to connect with people. And so uh, definitely worth just playing around with. OK, so. Rob, how do you respond to a client who asks to see samples of your work when you don't yet have samples? Or maybe you don't have a sample of the particular deliverable they're asking for. Yeah. Again, another great question that comes up quite a bit. Uh, and I know sometimes this the answers that we have for this are not satisfactory because you feel like, well, I need to have something that matches the client's need. And so I think the first thing to understand is when clients are asking for samples, what they're really saying, although they're not saying it with these words is, hold on a second, I don't have enough information to trust you. Help me figure out if I can trust you. And the natural inclination they have is to ask for samples because that shows, you know, at least they think that shows that you've done some work that, you know, is applicable to what they're doing. And so what we're really trying to do here is, is to build trust. So if you truly do not have a sample and you can't, you know, share something that's similar, uh, you don't have time to you know, write something that's maybe similar like what we talked about uh, in one of the early episodes of the podcast, um, you know, when we're talking about Upwork and you know, how do you create um, you know, this uh, the sample that's kind of like the thing that uh, you want or that the client wants, but that you don't have. And you know, how do you create that sort of portfolio for your business? Uh, I think that was with um, it's a Daniel um, Margulies, um, uh, episode 29 on the podcast, something like that, uh, rings a bell, but I, I could be wrong about that. So, um, but I mean, yeah, basically, you know, you can either write a sample, you know, spend a little bit of your time and create something that's similar to, you definitely don't, you know, so if somebody's saying, um, Hey, I want a sales page for, you know, a vitamin supplement, I wouldn't write a sales page for a vitamin supplement. You might write a lead for something similar, you know, maybe it's some other kind of, you know, a health supplement or a protein supplement or something like that. You might just, you know, pen four or 500 words and just show that you're capable of coming up with an idea, a lead, that kind of thing. Or if you don't want to do that work, and I'm not sure that that's where I would start, I would uh, talk about your process, um, you know, share testimonials, like share the other things that build trust, that prove that you are who you are, that you're going to deliver what you say. Um, because again, when it comes right down to it, they're looking for a reason to trust you, not necessarily because they want to see that you've done the exact same thing for somebody else. What do you think? Yeah. And there's a good chance. I mean, you've already said this, but if it's the questions popping up because there is just like an inkling of um, doubt in the prospect's mind about whether or not you can do it or you're the right person. So if this question has been popping up frequently with most prospects you're talking to, then I would start to look at your sales call. What is happening or not happening on your sales call that is causing this perfect client to question you and ask for more information, which really the sample is just more information. So it might be worth you know, auditing your sales call, um, going through some type of sales call training, looking, talking to other copywriters about how they structure their sales calls and just reworking that because if you really do nail your sales call and you nail your proposal, most likely the prospect isn't going to ask you for samples. Like they're sold. They, they're sold on after talking to you and they're sold after seeing a really brilliant proposal that's well-crafted 
and they don't need to see anything else. So I think there could be some holes that are worth looking at if this is a question that pops up frequently. Yeah. I, and I think, I mean, neither you or I share samples very often. Usually we'll share case studies, uh, you know, things that we've done in the past where we're talking about our approach to a project. We're talking about our process. Maybe we're sharing results if we have them, but that actually does more for building trust than actually sending over, you know, a sample sales page or an email sequence. And yeah, and I did share our samples early on when I was just getting started. I always sent over samples and I was asked for samples. So this is a normal process. There's nothing wrong if people, with you if people are asking you for them. But as soon as you can shift to case studies, life gets a lot easier. And as soon as you can tighten up sales calls and proposals, I mean, my proposals are pretty awful when I was getting started. Um, they're much better now. So of course, people were asking me for samples because my proposals look like a beginner. So um there's always room for growth in this area to avoid sending samples. Maybe that's a, a good time to um, mention that we do have a, a pretty killer proposal training that's you know part of the underground. It's called the Perfect Proposal, and if, if proposals is something that you struggle with, that might be worth checking out. Yeah, and in that we share our own proposals, we share our entire process for creating them. Um, it's it's really helpful if you're working from scratch. You can use a template that actually. Uh, makes sense and you could you can copy. Okay, next question. What is one thing, something that you wish that you had done either earlier or differently in your business as you were starting out, Kara? I feel kind of like a jerk saying this, but there's not there's not a lot I would change. Is that the worst thing to say? That's the jerkiest answer ever. No. That's the no. jerk. I am a total jerk. I I mean I'm I, I feel pretty good about my copywriting path from the beginning. I feel like made some good decisions along the way. Um, I, if I was really analyzing it, I would say maybe collecting more case studies early on, it's kind of to just address the previous question, um, to turn some of those earlier projects into case studies, to build my confidence. That would have built my confidence faster. I think that could have just helped me possibly charge more early, earlier on. Um, so that could be part of it. I also think developing SOPs and, um, and systematizing, autom automating more of my business, especially when I was really busy working with eight clients at a time. If I had worked with someone and developed, you know, the automated process for sales calls and for project management, my life would have been a lot easier. So I guess that would be one thing just pulling in somebody, getting that support, even more than I did. I, I worked with a project manager and that was wonderful. But to build out systems that would work for me and make my life a lot easier, I just didn't, I didn't think about it at the time. So I just kind of did everything on my own with my VA, not systematizing it. What about you, Rob? What would you do differently? So I think the thing that has become crystal clear as we've built the Copywriter Club together is that relationships are way more important than what I understood them to be back when I was starting out. You know, I, um, I, I worked in an ad agency, I worked in creative groups. And so there were other people around me and I was learning from them, but, um, you know, really rely on, on people to give me feedback on my copy, um, creating, you know, not necessarily business partnerships, but friendships where, you know, we could support each other. Um, that stuff, did, I, I didn't pay attention to that early on. And uh, I've seen the impact that that has in people who have joined, you know, our membership and, you know, the, the think tank mastermind. I've seen, you know, e 
it even happens organically in our free group, you know, as people connect with each other. And so I think if I could go back, uh, I would, you know, talk to myself about, you know, remembering or figuring out a way to make relationships a bigger part of how I was spending my time developing that network and really trying to, um, create those dependencies between me and other people, you know, where I could get the help that I needed faster and I might learn and grow faster than what I actually did. But doesn't an agency have a built-in community and a built-in network? So maybe you just didn't need it. No, they, well, they do. And, um, you know, there were some things at my agency um, that, you know, kind of separated out groups. I was part of a direct response group instead of the branding group or whatever. And so um, I think that those feedback loops are there in agencies. Uh, I was only in, you know, that particular agency for about four years. You know, I was in other in-house groups where those ties were maybe just a little bit different. So yeah, definitely that stuff happens. We did have creative direction and, um, you know, you're working with art directors or whatever, bouncing ideas off of each other. Um, but I think like it even goes beyond that, it, you know, not just the person that's like looking at your headlines, but really trying to create um, re- long lasting relationships um, that span, you know, beyond working on a project together or, you know getting a particular uh, opinion on a headline that I wrote, that kind of thing. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I think one thing that I did early on that um, sometimes is tricky to do is just kind of teaching and showing up and marketing and being visible when I was just getting started. And I, not that I, I didn't know anything, but I, I was a new copywriter, a new business owner, and I think I was cocky enough maybe <laughs> or naive enough or ignorant enough just to kind of jump in and start hosting webinars and start pitching podcasts and start writing guest posts and teaching and sharing even as I was learning. And so I think that helped me gain confidence earlier. I think it's not always easy to do that, um, but it could be helpful. And I think if you're someone who's questioning, well, what do I have to teach? What do I have to share? Which is pops up for so many of us. I mean, if anything, I have more of those questions now because I know way more. And so I have the imposter complex pops up way more frequently now that I have a more vast knowledge of the space. But um, it's never too early to start showing up and sharing your process and talking about what you're doing and sharing your wins and sharing your struggles and, um, and building that body of work that Selena Sue talked about in our podcast interview with her. And so I think that's where I see a lot of newer copywriters maybe struggling because they're questioning whether or not they should do it. And it's also scary. And so I would say that's something that could be really helpful rather than waiting till somebody taps you on the shoulder or waiting till you have five years of experience. Um, you can start today and start speaking up and sharing what, you're, what you know and what you're learning. Okay, Rob, this question has popped up in the group. So let's tackle it. How would you define success as a copywriter beyond the dollars earned? Do you believe that copywriters have to hit that six-figure mark before they get respect? Um, Or is it really about something else? Yes. If you don't have six figures, or actually even better, seven figures, then you are not worthy of respect as a copywriter. Final answer. No, of course not. Um, I think think that six-figure or whatever that dollar thing uh, I think that happens because money is easy to measure. 
And so many of the other things in our business are difficult to measure. So I don't think that you need to be making six figures to be a great copywriter. In fact, I think there are copywriters out there that don't want to make six figures. They, they you know, they want to do this part time or they, uh, they just want to bring in some additional income for their family because they've got a partner or a spouse who is the main breadwinner. And uh, so I, I don't think that that's um, necessarily the goal for everybody. And maybe even for most bodies, it's not really the goal. I think to be successful as a copywriter, you are solving problems for your clients that they can't solve on their own, or at least they can't do it very easily. You're creating value in their businesses and you're being paid a fair rate for the value that you're creating. So, you know, if you're, if you're creating million dollars of value, for sure, you should be making, you know, something close to six figures, maybe more. If you're, you know, operating on a smaller level and you're cool with that, the fact that you're solving problems for your clients, the fact that you're delivering things to them on time, that you're, you know, helping them to grow and to be better, I think that's a perfectly acceptable um, measure of success. And I, I, to that, I guess I would add, are you happy doing it? You know, do you enjoy your work? You know, if, if Sunday evening comes along and you start dreading the fact that you've got to, you know, write for a particular client or you've got to do something like that's not necessarily a good sign. And, you know, you, you really should be excited about the work that you're doing and the clients that you're working with. And so if that needs to change, change it so that you can feel more successful in your role as a copywriter. What about you? What would you add to that? I think for me personally, the copywriters I respect the most are ones who could be doing well financially. I mean, I don't know. I don't know how much money people make. Um, I don't really care about that. I think it's uh, usually it's clear that people are doing well financially when they're showing up consistently, when they're um, sharing. They're a practitioner. And we can tell which copywriters are practitioners and which ones are like just talking constantly about it, but not actually doing the work. Um, so I I respect copywriters who are building their business their own unique way and making their own rules along the way and figuring out how to do it, like you said, um, for the sake of happiness, but for the sake of health and building something that isn't um, going to drain them and doing something differently in the space and sharing it, uh, talking about it, but doing it because it's just who they are and there's no other option for them. So I guess I'm drawn to more of those thought leaders in the space who are maybe slightly rebellious or just a little bit contrarian where they're like, I don't want to do it the way everyone else is doing it. I want to figure out how to make this work for me. And those are the people I find mo most interesting in the space. Awesome. Okay. Uh, what about uh, this question? What are your go-to tools that you use as you write? Um, it's a funny question for me because I feel like I'm the least tool savvy person when it comes to writing. I just, I, I use Google Docs. Like I write on the blank page. My tool is like getting away from the desk and just thinking like Eddie Baroon shared on his podcast interview with us where he talked about leaving the, t the desk and just like thinking and that he writes as he thinks through it. And that's kind of how I am. Like I have to think through what I want to say before I say it. Um, and so my tools are very, I mean, they're very simple. I mean, I have the same research tools everyone has, type form, um, 
but I'm not using a, a wide range of tools uh, beyond experimenting with Notion because Annie Bacher has um, has praised it so much that I am now experimenting with Notion. But I'm pretty basic. I'm a basic writer. What about you, Rob? You're more tool savvy than I am. Yeah, I don't know that I necessarily use tools to write as much as, you know, a couple of things that I use in our business. So, you know, like Wave for my personal business, um, Wave app for billing, invoicing, like it, that makes that makes life so much easier um, than what I used to do with, you know, creating invoices in Word and saving them as PDFs, all of that. There are some tools, you know, for signing um, contracts, you know, that kind of stuff. So like um, Better Proposals is an awesome tool for creating proposals as well as, uh, you know, fine, uh, legal agreements. Um, but I'm like you, I generally write, uh, either in Google docs or in pages, uh, Apple pages. Um, I don't, uh, use a lot of writing tools like, you know, Hemingway, but I, I probably open up thesaurus.com about 12 times a day, maybe 15 times a day. Like I'm always looking for other words or different ways to say things when I'm writing. Uh, so that, that would be maybe the main tool that I use. I have experimented with Notion and also with Rome, uh, you know, with note taking. And I just, I don't know, I just cannot make that work for me. So I've used Evernote just kind of as a file drawer of, of ideas and things that I, you know, want to come back to. But um, the weakness with the, those kinds of tools for me is that um, they don't resurface. You know, it's the, sometimes I put that stuff in there and it's just, I forget about it and it's lost until I'm like, you know, scanning through Evernote. And so I've been playing around with a tool called Readwise, which helps surface some of that, that forgotten stuff and maybe, you know, brings back ideas, whatever. Um, I have no idea if I like it or not yet. I literally just started using it. So, you know, maybe I'll report back on that. But yeah, as far as tools go for writing, my laptop and, you know, Google Docs, that's the main, the main tool. So um, I am always interested in tools other copywriters are using, especially since I'm I, I am not necessarily drawn to tools um, typically. And so one that was shared with me recently that I thought was really cool, shared by Marcy Lynn, uh, who was an Accelerator member with us and is also a retention um, membership strategist. And so I've worked with her on that uh, retention strategies for the Accelerator. She shared this really cool tool um, called Video Ask. <laughs> which probably isn't anything new, but it was really fun because she sent me a link to survey me about our experience working together. And it was a really fun way of allowing me to respond to her survey questions via video, via audio, or I could type it out. And it was all baked in this one tool through videoask.com. And I was also able to see her on video asking me the questions. So it felt really intimate and was just this awesome experience, which is what Marcy is all about. That's, that's what she tries to do for her, help her clients create for her, for their customers. So, um, I would definitely look into video ask for your own surveys and offboarding and follow-up questions for your clients. I think that's something that we could use for the copywriter club too. Video ask is a tool from Typeform. Uh, so the, it's the same company, which is kind of cool because Typeform is a great tool too. I did not know that. These are things, things I do not know. But yes, worth checking out. Any other tools we should share that are cool or worth exploring? No, I, I mean, I, we already talked about it. my favorite tools are books. You know, that's where ideas come from. And so that's that's probably really, sh that should have been my answer is my favorite tools are books. So we're basically not helpful with this answer. Yeah, sorry we are, about that. We're better with the book question. 
All right. Next question. How do you find your first client? Rob, if you had to find your first client, what would you do to get that first client? So you mean like if I'm starting over, how would I do a first client If today? you're starting over, yeah, you're a new copywriter and you need to find your first client, what would you do? Uh, okay. So, you know, starting from scratch, you know, I would start reaching out to my network. Number one, I would let them know uh, what problem that I could help them solve. And I would just start reaching out. So based on, you know, my past experience, whatever, I've worked with a lot of people in the technology field. So I would you know, figure out what is the need in that field? You know, is it, is it something like case studies? Is it content, you know, for their website? Uh, you know, is there something that I could do to help them sell uh, memberships or, or, you know, recurring, um, you know, to get that recurring monthly uh, revenue? Um, and then I would, you know, pitch a project to them, uh, you know, and I would start with my network. If uh, that doesn't result in in results, then I would go broader than that. You know, I would start uh, cold pitching people in the industry that I want to work in. I would, you know, identify uh, people at uh, companies, particularly, you know, again, if I'm stick, sticking with, say, tech or SaaS or, you know, where I've done a lot of work in the past, I would identify uh, companies that maybe have some funding, uh, that have a marketing team uh, with marketing budget, because I know that you know they're spending money on marketing and figure out what problem I could help them solve there. Uh, so that's what I would do if I was starting over. The way that I actually got my first client was, uh, you know, I met somebody at a party and they had work, and you know, I I didn't even know what copywriting was, and they needed help, and I said, yeah, I'll, let's try it out, let's see. And so uh, I, I guess in a way that was networking, although I wasn't even aware that I was doing it at the time. How was this you? like late night, late night at a party? Uh, I don't know how, I mean, I'm not sure it was that late, but yeah, it was Maybe probably, <laughs> it was probably after dark. <laughs> um, for, so I think your advice is great. And I, the only thing I would say for, from my experience getting my first few clients, it was from what we call the low hanging fruit, which is probably the worst way to describe our circle of colleagues and friends. So it was through my list of colleagues and people who already trusted me and who knew what I could do what I was capable of and even could see it before I could see it. So um, working with them and uh, having the opportunity to write website copy for colleagues who are building their own consulting businesses, like Alyssa Burkis, shout out to Alyssa, who told me, Kira, you're a copywriter, like build the business. It's here. People are hiring you. People are paying you. So all that to say, like I would all start with the people who know and trust you already and could use help, um, even if it's not the final destination, even if you're starting writing website copy and maybe you know you want to write some sales pages or work on case studies, start with uh, what they need, start solving problems. I think the key is to just start solving problems for people who will pay you because that's what builds confidence and that's what builds your experience and allows you to grow from there. Yeah. And then maybe a final question that kind of builds on that one, you know, how do you up-level your clients from these small, low-paying projects that come early in our careers to bigger, better-paying work? Um, and, and maybe even more importantly, like, how do you find the time to up-level because you're stretched, you know, all your time is going to doing this client work. You've barely got time to work in your own business. Like, how do you do that? Yeah, well, we've said this many times, so it probably would sound like a broken record at this point, but... Um, Making the time comes down to flipping the script and focusing on your own business before you focus on your client 
work because for for most of us, we will hit deadlines. We will stay up all night if we have to to hit a deadline, um, especially if you're a people pleaser like me, like you will be okay. You will do the client work and you will do the client work well. Uh, but what you won't do is you won't work on your own business. You'll postpone that and you'll put everything into the projects for other people because we're driven that way and we're driven to make other people happy oftentimes before we focus on what's right in front of us and what will help us grow. So as soon as you can flip that, and that's not an easy switch, and it takes oftentimes some mindset work. Um, It might take working with someone on your mindset or just like working through that on your own. But when you can flip it and you start every day focused on your business, or if it's not every day, it could be like every Monday you spend four hours focusing on your business and marketing your business and creating content for your business before you dive into the client projects that always feel urgent and will always feel urgent moving forward. Um, When we've worked with copywriters who make that switch, that's when they start to show up and that's when they start to feel a big difference in the clients that they're working with, how much they can charge. Um, Because if you don't make that time for your own business, you're not going to be able to do the things you need to do to go from low paying projects to high paying projects, um, which is all about marketing and building your authority and building your visibility. Um, You can't do that if you don't have time. So I think that's the first part of the question. Yeah. And just to add to that, you know, as you start to level up, you know, very few people are able to, you know, if you're, if you're working in the course uh, niche, you're, you're not, you're, you're not likely to pitch, you know, an Amy Porterfield, who's sort of at the top of this niche as your first client, or, you know, if you're working in the medical field and want to work with doctors, pitching the Mayo Clinic uh, or Cedar sinai Hospital is probably not your first client. Like that's a hard one to land because they're kind of up there at the top. But laddering up, you know, starting with that first doctor and then taking that success and pitching, you know, another doctor who maybe has, you know, two or three offices or, you know, their their practice is bigger. And then you pitch the next thing and, and you slowly build on that as you move up the ladder. It doesn't have to take years, but oftentimes um, you do need to show that you can deliver results for the smaller clients who are willing to take a chance before you're going to get to that bigger client that is not going to take a chance because now they have literally millions of dollars writing on the success or failure of a campaign. They need to be able to know that you're going to deliver. And so just laddering up, you know, with, with clients as you build your business is part of the process and we can do it quickly. Sometimes it takes a couple of years, but it is definitely part of the process. And if you keep at it, you'll get there eventually. Yeah. It's all about building that body of work that shows that you're an expert and that takes time, but you're right. You can move through it a little bit faster um, depending on what you focus on. So I, I mean, this is why I highly recommend creating your own media channel, whether it's a podcast or a YouTube channel or something else where you own it and you show up consistently and like you run the show and it's your expertise. Even if you're interviewing other people, it's like your front and center and you attract people to you and you can invite guests on your show strategically, like maybe they're ideal clients and you invite them to your show, or maybe you pitch other podcasts and you only pitch other shows with the host that you know is a dream client. That it works. I mean, it it works really well. I've been on shows where the host is an ideal client and we build a relationship over an hour 
And then a couple months later, they reach out and they're like, hey, here's a project. I'd love to work with you. Or if you can't do it, like, do you know any copywriters? Because you've built that trust. So you're the go-to resource for that person. And it, it can start really easily if you're not ready to start your own show because that takes time and dedication and a lot of work and money. You can at least show up on other people's platforms. And it's never, never too early to start doing that. I think the the one other thing to add to that is, of course, as you ladder up, as you move from one client to another, you have to actually create value and you do have to deliver. You have to, you know, you have to show up. You have to do the things that you say. If you promise somebody, you know, a voice guide or a branding guide and you're not able to create that and you don't create, you, you fail, that's a mark that's going to hold you back from moving up the ladder the next step. And so, uh, you know, as we become more comfortable with the work that we do, that becomes easier, which is, again, maybe one of the reasons why sometimes it does take a little bit of time, but you do have to deliver. You have to, you know, show up as a professional, create value, solve real problems. Again, if you can do that, moving up the ladder is pretty, pretty fast and pretty easy. Okay. Maybe we should wrap up with a quick lightning round. <laughs> Uh-oh. What, uh, what questions for the lightning? Rob, what are you eating for lunch today? That is a really good question. What will you eat? What will you eat today? So, uh, yeah, lightning quick. I think I'm going to go get some tacos. Uh, there's a new taco place here that I really like. And so I'm going to go get some fish tacos. I think, how about you lunch? Sounds really good. I was just actually, I've been trying to order a salad as we're recording this. (laughs) (laughs) That's, that brings up the question. So if you see me distracted, it's it's because I was trying to order a salad. I have not been successful in doing that yet. So yeah, trying to eat sort of healthy because I'm growing a human inside of me. Um, but I was also tempted. I was like, maybe I should get McDonald's. I'm really craving some French fries. So I don't know. French fries? I know that's not great. Yeah. I know, it's, but French fries I'm are not going to criticize anybody who wants French fries. I think French fries are fantastic. They're delicious. Thank you. Thank you. So. One more lightning round question. Um, favorite day of the week? Friday. Yeah, Friday. How about you? <laughs> Do I have to have um, a reason? Uh, I mean, I think it's pretty obvious with Friday. It was always a half a day at school or whatever. You know, it's the beginning of the weekend. I love Fridays. I think Fridays are awesome. What about you? Is it Friday? It is a Thursday. I'm a, I used to really enjoy Thursdays in my 20s. And so I still feel like it just represents freedom. And I kind of do take freedom Fridays. So Thursday is like my Friday. Um, okay. Nickname your parents used to call you. Uh, my dad called me Pete. Pete? Pete. Yeah. Oh, I don't know why. I, I, I can't tell you why. <laughs> he called me Pete and my, uh, my, uh, my next younger brother was uh, Butch and I have no idea why he called him Butch That's either. I, it's just awesome. nicknames that happen. Do you have a nickname? Um, my parents used to call me Kitty Cat. I was Kitty Cat. All right. And now I call my daughter the same thing. She's very cat-like. How long does it take you to get ready in the morning? Uh, Well, it depends on how you define ready. I mean, you know, like I exercise, I do some meditation and stuff, but like shower dressed about 20 minutes. And you're showering every day? Yeah, I shower every day. Yeah, for sure. How long does it take you to get ready? About 20 minutes. I get ready as my kids, as I get them up and get them ready. I kind of touch up some makeup, do a little bit of grooming. Then I don't shower every day. I'm not a daily shower person. I don't think I ever will be. I would go crazy. Uh, to, I just, <laughs> I don't know. I feel, I feel dirty after a day. I'm sure that's a habit. It's, uh, it's probably not even true. But yeah. I mean, how dirty could you be? Like we're in an office all day. We're not, 
we're copywriter. This, we're all, copywriters. Of this, all of this persuasion and manipulation wipes off on me. So yeah, I have to shower it off at the end of the day. I don't know why. It's a, it's a habit. It's probably because I exercise see? most days. Since I exercise most days, I have to shower. Oh, see, I don't exercise. Yeah, that's the difference. Um, scale of one to 10, how good of a driver are you? Uh, I'm going to say I'm average. I mean, I've been wow. in a couple of accidents. I've, I've, I was in a couple of accidents as a kid. I haven't been in an accident in a long time, but I'm not. Sh- I I would not say that I'm a better than average driver. I think I'm probably average. I think most people say they're better than average, but I think I'm surprised. I'm yeah, average. I would have. I wish I would have known that before I got into a car with you. Have I? Yeah, <laughs> I was gonna say, have we driven anywhere? You've driven Take me one time. I thought you were hand. good. I, I'm probably a four, oh, so you probably, if you're a five, it's probably better that we had you driving, but I'm probably like a three or four because I'm a city walker and I just, am, you know, it hasn't been, I don't drive frequently. So good to know. We should just, we should make sure we get a driver next time we're together. Um, last question. First celebrity crush. Oh, that is a good one. Um, Christy McNichol. Like, that's that? gonna that's gonna like totally date me. So like like that would have been end of the seventies. She was I think she dated Sean Cassidy, if I remember right. But I just remember like as a kid, as maybe I was probably 10, 11, I was like, she's beautiful. Yes. For celebrity crush. That's probably Christy McNichol. You I'm sure everybody's running running to Google it unless they're Gen X. I maybe, need to Google. I don't know. Maybe who that they'll is. remember. How about you? Who's your first celebrity crush? Um, it was Donnie from New Kids on the Block. Donnie was like the bad <laughs> yeah. boy. Donnie Wahlberg. Yeah. yeah. And I also had a crush on his brother, Mark, Marky Mark, later, years later. So the Wahlbergs definitely. Um, he was my favorite. I think we're way over time. I think we're boring people with our answers at this point. <laughs> wait, yeah. wait, wait, one more. There's, I need to keep this this resource on because this is there's so many great lightning round questions. Um, would you want to live forever? Sure. Why not? I mean, I, it depends on like, is my body going to be like falling apart? Cause <laughs> I'm not sure I would enjoy that. But if, uh, if I'm healthy, you know, if I'm, if I'm not like wheelchair bound or whatever, bed bound. Yeah, for sure. Why not? How about you? No, I would definitely not. No. Okay. I All don't right. want to live well, forever. <laughs> yeah, I kind of like to none. see what's. I kind of like to see what's going to happen in the future. I want to see how this story ends and I want, it'd be nice to be there for it. I mean, so. I want to live a long, healthy life. Like I'd like to be 90 or a hundred, but I don't want to live forever. That's, I mean, that's like a vampire. Yeah. Well, I mean, can I come out in the sun? Yeah. You know, I mean, if I'm a vampire, I don't want to live forever, but if I can, if I can be in the sun and I'm healthy, yeah, sure. Why not? Let's say, let's okay. keep this thing I going. Think that's yeah. A, I think that's a good last question, but I am really excited to have this, all these lightning round questions ready for all of our future interviews with other podcast guests. Yeah. For our next podcast guest in eight minutes, we will ask some of these questions. Okay. Thanks for joining us this week as we answered a few of your questions. If you have a question you'd like us to answer on a future podcast, just send them over to us at help at thecopywriterclub.com and we'll add your questions to the list. Please include your name if you want us to give you a shout out in the episode. And that's the end of this episode of the Copywriter Club podcast. Our intro music was composed by copywriter and songwriter Addison Rice. Our outro was composed by copywriter and songwriter David Muntner. And thank you again to both of you guys, because even 30 episodes later, these 
pieces make me smile. If you've enjoyed what you've heard, please visit Apple Podcasts and leave your review of the show. Your review will help other copywriters find the program so that they can get better at this thing that we all do together. And to get your ticket to TCC Not In Real Life, that's our event this April 7th through 9th, go to thecopywriterclub.com forward slash TCCIRL dash one. You'll find a link to that in the show notes of this episode. Thanks for listening, and we will see you next week. Copywriters coming together to help the world write better. Copy and make more money. Kira and Rob's Copywriters Club